we are now going to begin the battle royal on the millennium. I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, I am privileged to have with me here uh, some of uh, these men, some of you know, uh, some of you don't know, so I want to introduce them to you. Uh, Dr. Sam Parkinson is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Director of the Abu Dhabi uh, Extension Site of the Gulf Theological Seminary. Uh, many of you know Sam, he's a, a faithful member of uh, ECC. <clears throat> of course, Dr. Tom Schreiner. We have Dr. Eric Zeller, uh, who is the President of uh, Gulf Theological Seminary and Professor of New Testament Interpretation. And then we have Dr. Adam Brown, uh, who many of you know from your foundations courses. Uh, I, I see some of you who are taking foundations this year. Dr. Adam Brown is um, Professor of Old Testament, and he is the Dean of Extension Sites. And uh, what we are going to be doing in this time is uh, hopefully modeling for you uh, how to have a theological conversation uh, conversation on interpretive matters uh, from a disputed passage of the Bible, and especially how to charitably engage in discussion on issues of interpretation or theology on which you might disagree with someone. Uh, because uh, all of the four men on this panel hold a different view on the text that we're going to be looking at. Uh, there are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of uh, common areas of agreement but there are some significant disagreements as well. And uh, this uh, that we're going to be talking about is a secondary matter. So we want to say on, you know, on primary matters we all agree and we hold those closely and firmly. But at the same time, there are some matters which are inconsequential enough that we can disagree within the bounds of fellowship and have uh, conversations about and help to sharpen one another and grow one another in. And that's the goal of this time together. Hopefully, our hope is that uh, as we engage in this conversation, the text and the various ways that this text is understood will be illumined to you, and you will be helped in understanding the text and uh, go from here better equipped uh, to know what Revelation 20 says. So that's the text we're going to be looking at. If I could briefly open in a word of prayer for us. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for this... Uh, amazing set of scholars uh, that are represented here and the privilege of hearing from them. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word and your word is clear. And even if we sometimes struggle to understand what your word says, uh, Father, your word is for our good and it instructs us and it enables us, Lord, to live in obedience to you. Uh, I pray that you would uh, help us uh, have clarity as we speak and discuss this matter and that you would help everyone who is listening grow in their understanding through this discussion. Give us grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the key text in question, like I said, is Revelation chapter 20. And so I'm going to, uh, we're jumping ahead to tomorrow's, uh, <laughs> uh, tomorrow's session, right? Uh, but this is a, a very important text in the book of Revelation. Like I said, it's disputed. So I'm going to read Revelation 20 for us. And then I will uh, begin to hand it over to the panel here. So Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, 
that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I, saw the, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I think the debate centers on this passage, and particularly we're talking about the millennium, which is thousand, one thousand, right? Uh, what, what does this thousand-year time period refer to? When is that taking place? Right? What, what, how do we understand this passage? And so uh, I'll start with Dr. Brown at the other end there. Uh, would you help us understand uh, briefly how you interpret Revelation 20 and when you see this as taking place? Okay, well, it's great to be here. Uh, just to introduce a little bit of vocabulary before I begin, uh, pre-millennialism is a position that states that you believe that Jesus comes back before the millennium begins, and that would be the position that I hold. And so my reading of Revelation is a straightforward, sequential reading of Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. So things are unfolding in a sequen sequential process where we have uh, the context in 19 would be a great battle, uh, great conflict uh, that finds its climax in and around Jerusalem. And it's at that point that Jesus returns to the earth and brings victory with him and throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. After that, uh, he throws Satan into a pit, basically taking him out of commission. And then there's a great resurrection where you know, all of the saints, in my view, of every age, 
plus the tribulation saints will be raised from the dead. And then we will reign with Christ for a thousand years, after which point Satan will be released uh, from his prison. And he will be able to muster an army. He'll make an effort to overthrow Jesus and, uh, and the saints, but will be soundly defeated. From there, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and then everybody will be raised from the dead, and we'll have a final judgment. So that would be my position. There's more details, but that's the basic uh, infrastructure of it. Dr. Zeller. Yeah, thanks, Pastor Aubrey. And thanks uh, it's not, I think we need to. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> I was saying thanks, Pastor Aubrey, and uh, thanks, everyone, for being here. It's a privilege to be on the stage with some of my favorite Bible teachers in the world, which is what each of these men are. And so I'm here representing the view called historic premillennialism. And so premillennial, as Dr. Brown just explained, historic because uh, my particular version is the older version taught in the history of the church. And so what I would believe is in, in broad strokes the same thing that Dr. Brown just articulated, that Revelation 19 describes the return of Christ. Later on, Revelation 21 and 22 are going to describe the new heavens and the new earth. But in between, Revelation 20 describes this period that we call the millennium. Now, just a couple of things that I'll add to that. One is that as we compare this view to other views, one way to think about it is that pretty much all of us here, I think all of us on this stage, are going to describe the kingdom of God as revealed in the Bible as something, we, we use the terms already but not yet, meaning that there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, the reign of God is existing now, uh, beginning with the first coming of Jesus Christ, and there's a sense in which that is not, is not yet fully realized. And so there's two stages that belong to Christ's kingdom, that that was a surprise to the disciples in the Gospels because they thought it would be only one stage, but actually it turned out to be two, and the premillennial view says, actually, as we keep reading the Bible, we get even more specificity to find out that those two stages are actually three, that that not yet portion of the kingdom is going to be realized in a preliminary kingdom, this millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20, as well as then subsequently the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's what we understand to be premillennialism. Adam, before I come to Dr. Schreiner, um, is there a particular aspect of your view that would maybe sharpen or further emphasis on whatever uh, Dr. Zeller said? Well, I, I agree with uh, what Dr. Zeller has said. I, I think the contribution that I might be able to make tonight is, as an Old Testament professor, I would really like to encourage us to not just make up our mind on how things are going to end based on Revelation 20, or even just the book of Revelation, or even only the New Testament. But I, I really advocate a bottom-up understanding where we, we come to where our position from Genesis through Malachi into the New Testament. And so, uh, especially the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, they have a lot to say about promises that God has made to Israel. And my, my belief is that God has to keep his promises. He's made promises to the nation of Israel. He's going to keep his promises. Otherwise, uh, I would argue that we have less than a certainty that, that, that God is going to keep his promises. Now, I know there's another way to interpret that. So 
just leave that hanging. But, but I do believe when God says that he has, he's made a promise to the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, uh, that he intends to keep that promise. And so there's more that I would say on that. I also have a geographically specific, I really do believe Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives, that the conflict will take place in Jerusalem. So I have a, a, a geographical specific specificity, and as well as a, a real concern for God's promises to the nation of Israel. Which you see as fulfilled in the millennium. Ultimately. Yes. yes. Um, Dr. Shriner, um recently, <laughs> recently has moved uh, from, uh, even in the seating arrangement, moved from this side of the room towards that side of the room, well, right in the middle. Uh, it's all a matter of perspective. Yeah. <laughs> why, why do you divide me from my brother? <laughs> so, uh, I've recently moved, I mean, wrote a commentary on Revelation, uh, basically arguing the view that Sam represents. Yes, yes. Then wrote another commentary on Revelation <laughs> with uh, something different. Yes. So, a variation of premillennialism. Uh, so, sort of. Sort yeah. of. Yeah. So you want to lay out for us what that well, is? Well, my goal is if I write every position somewhere, I can say I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I can say I've written about this, and clearly I'm right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, um, I agree. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, is the is the final judgment. I believe. Yes, chapter 20. We speak of the millennium, and in, in many senses, I agree with what they said, but I would want to say what distinguishes my view is the millennium is also the, the first age, I would argue, of the new creation. Therefore, what distinguishes my view, therefore, there are no unglorified saints in the millennium. So that's very important because in their view, there's unglorified saints during the millennium. So. I believe that the, the millennium is the first age of the new creation. Everybody's judged at the end of chapter 19. Sam and I would agree there. Everybody's judged at the end of uh, chapter 19. However, I take the binding of Satan, whether you take the thousand years as a literal number or not, I take the binding of Satan to be complete, and I take the first and second resurrection to be physical resurrections. So there's a period of time. It's the first age of the new creation. They're all glorified saints. Then after a thousand years, maybe a symbolic number, Satan uh, is released, and I argue that the wicked dead are raised from the dead. We're told they're raised from the dead in chapter 20, verse 5. They join Satan in an attack on the saints, and uh, they're destroyed. And then the new creation continues, and they're, they're gone. I mean, I could say more, but that's probably enough. Okay. Um. Dr. Parkinson. Um, yeah, so um, <clears throat> let me just brace what I'm about to say by um, emphasizing that uh, apart from a position called post-millennialism, which we might talk about um, at some point, um, the, the, the positions that we just broadly articulated, premillennialism and what I'm about to articulate as amillennialism, have very strong pedigree in the history of Christianity. And I want to say that because what I'm about to say may seem jarring and, and even just uh, potentially even offensive uh, that somebody would <laughs> articulate this position. So I just want to, to clarify that. Uh, I don't, my position is, is uh, called amillennialism, and it's a bad name for it because uh, the word awe um, means that I'm, I'm denying something. So 
uh, all millennialism from a from a etymological point of view uh, makes it sound like I don't believe in the millennium, but I do. It's right there. Now in, millennialism. In the scriptures. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, now millennialism might be yeah better. <laughs> so uh, what I think, and let me just also say, um, it's it's helpful to kind of hear these guys articulate their their positions because um, it's it's helpful for you to see where I'm coming from. I don't take Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 to be sequentially following one another. Um, the and and I think. Uh, uh, Dr. Schreiner is going to develop this over the course of the next few sessions, but um, what I hold to, and I think what he holds to even still uh, to today, would be a kind of what we call progressive parallelism, which is to say that many of the events that take place in the book of Revelation are uh, describing the same period of time with different images and from different pers perspectives. And um, so for me, I think that the, the chapter 20 begins a new cycle. So chapter, uh, chapter 19 ends with the end of history, and then chapter 20 begins a new cycle. And what I think, so, so then the question is, what is the period of time that uh, chapter 20 is describing? I think it's describing the entire period of time, the entire church age, essentially. The entire period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming at the end of uh, of, of uh, uh, chapter 20. And so what is happening in those thousand years? I think that that is describing, in, in brief, I think that that is describing the intermediate state. Uh, when, when a believer dies, when they are uh, faithful, if I use the, the, the language from Revelation chapter tw uh, 2 and uh, the promise that is given to the church in Smyrna, when they, when they are faithful to the end, they, uh, which I would take to mean they're faithful until to, to death, they enter into a uh, sort of heightened experience of reigning with Christ. And so those uh, of our family and friends and uh, those who have died in Christ who are uh, absent from the body and present with the Lord, I think that Revelation 20, the description of, of those who, are ex who have experienced the first resurrection is describing that exactly. So uh, there, there's a lot more that I, I want to say. But. And, I, and I think that's, that's a great description. And... You would want to say Satan was bound at the cross. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, the, 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 the binding uh, language I'm getting there from John chapter 12, where John, the same author, uh, I, I agree with you, that the, that the seer in Revelation is the evangelist in uh, John's gospel. So, John chapter 12, right before the crucifixion, he says, now is, now is the, the hour of judgment. Now is the time that the ruler of this world is cast out. And there is a variation of that same word that's, that's being used in Revelation chapter 20 when it says that he is bound and cast into the abyss. So I think that that's, that's happening. Another uh, uh, sort of picture is in the, in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about how uh, you, you can't plunder a strong man until he's bound. You bind the strong man before you can plunder his house. So I think that when Jesus came the first time, he bound the strong man. He bound Satan. Through his death. Through his, yes, through death his and death and resurrection. And now in this period. So what that means is the binding of Satan is a very specific kind of binding. It's not a, it's not a total binding. That's what divides us here. I don't think that Satan is totally bound. I think that he is bound with respect to uh, deceiving the nations, or I would say successfully deceiving the nations. So everyone here today, we're all believers from, from all over the world. 
and I think it's because the strong man is bound, and Christ is in the process of plundering his house, saving, saving sinners. So, Thank you. So uh, before we go further into interpreting passages, I just want to you know, highlight a little bit. Sometimes the book of Revelation, even discussions of when we talk about the millennium or especially when we talk about premillennialism, you know, might conjure up images of uh, the Left Behind movies, right? How many of you saw the Left Behind movies? Oh, yeah, wow. look at that. Wow. Yeah. So uh, Left, Left Behind The Kirk movies. Cameron version or the Nick Cage version? That's the real question. <laughs> Le so, yeah, people think of left-behind movies, pre-tribulational rapture, you know, prophecy charts from the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, all of those things. So, is, is that an accurate picture of what, you know, your view might represent, his, or, you know, what premillennialism represents historically or today? No. <laughs> you know, I think one way to think about the different views that are being described is when it comes to prophecy... We can, there's a couple different errors that are possible. One is to go too far in finding more specificity than the Bible gives us. And so I think that's potentially the danger of some of those left behind type resources that that's how we read Revelation and we start hearing teaching that's talking about, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and Apache helicopters and COVID-19 vaccines and we're finding all that in Revelation. What's happening there is that we're taking this symbolic language and we're, we're getting more specificity, and, which is ultimately more subjective than the text warrants. And so it's getting into this very specific, very dogmatic interpretation that ultimately is not justified by good exegesis. Now, there's an opposite error to say, okay, on the other hand, we can be so afraid of this error of over-specificity that we're going to go totally the other way and say, hey, this is all very symbolic and we really can't understand any of it and it's all kind of about God is good and Satan is bad and, you know, it, it, Jesus wins in the end and that's about as far as we can go. And the error on that side is that we're, we're ultimately not answering the question of why is this book in the Bible? Mm. And so I think for all of us on that spectrum, we're saying, okay, we don't want to be over here where the, the left behind type resources are. We're, we're saying cautious exegesis is going to pull us back from that a little ways, but one disagreement between us is that probably whereas Sam is saying, hey, we got to go pretty far over here, I'm saying I think we can be a little more specific. I think I would affirm a lot of what these guys are going to affirm, but I think we can be a little more specific about how it unfolds than, than they might be willing to go to. Yeah, I think all five of us would uh, respectfully say, I mean, once you see it, you can't unsee it, but we would say, you know, the Left Behind series or all of these things I just referenced are not helpful ways to approach the Bible or the book of Revelation or eschatology in general. So uh, part of what we want to help in this conference is to help you understand how to read Revelation well, and that's why we're doing this. Uh, I think, can, can I just, what, the, the, the reason why we don't want to just kind of log, log, log this bomb and just say, like, don't do the left behind version, you know, and then move on. But I think the reason why is because when you zoom out and look at the history of interpretation, it's an incredibly novel interpretation. Um, it, it, it arose at, towards the end of the 19th century. And so uh, what, what that basically implies is that for nearly 2,000 years of the, of the history of Christ's church, um, the book of Revelation was absolutely ununderstandable by all Christians. Mm. And I think uh, just to kind of bring things back to, to what Dr. Schreiner was talking about at the very beginning of, 
of his, uh, of his session is that the book of Revelation is for the church. It's for all Christians. Yeah, it, not, and not it was even. written for a particular people who were alive during the time that they received it. And so if, basically, if, if we have an interpretation that would have been absolutely inconceivable for even the first generation and every subsequent generation until the 19th century, that's a good clue that we're, it's, not a, it's not a valid interpretation. It's very American also. Sam, when was the amillennial view first articulated no, in the history of the church? Left behind movies. Just historically, when did the amill view show up? When did it show up? Yeah. That's actually not an easy question to, to Oh, answer. I'm not asking the question. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so can let's I, come can back I to say Dr. something Brown. about that? I mean, there, uh, Charles Hill argues in his book Regnum Calorum that the amillennial view showed up really in the 200s. So... It, it depends on how you interpret it, but it, yeah, I, it has a long lineage, mm -hmm. so. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, Dr. Brown, who's been quiet for some time, <laughs> ruminating on Old Testament passages, mm -hmm. which he's going to help us look at now. Uh, Dr. Brown, you know, and I'll come to the others as well, but just very quickly, what are some key parts of the Old Testament that would inform your understanding of the Millennial Kingdom what parts of the New Testament outside of Revelation are relevant and why? This is hard to keep brief, but let me, let me do my best to give you a real, real quick sketch of what I, what I perceive to be the essential plot of the Old Testament that really sets the stage for understanding anything eschatological. And that is that, that God is in relationship with humanity and we sin and rebel against him. God divides humanity into nations. And then he chooses a man and says, from you, I'm going to create a family. And from your family, I'm going to create a nation. That nation is going to be a kingdom of priests. And they're going to mediate my relationship with the rest of the nations. And then you have a number of covenants with that nation, uh, many of them unconditional. Uh, and including a king that will reign over Israel. And, and the king of Israel will be the king of the nations. Now, they break covenant, so we get into the prophets, and when you get into Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, the message can be simplified in this way. Uh, you've broken covenant, therefore, judgment is coming against you uh, because there are conditional blessings and curses, and so the full weight of the curses are coming against you. However, I have made unconditional promises to you, including a king that will reign forever, over your nation and all of the nations. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to keep my unconditional promises. And on the other side of judgment, there's hope. I'm going to restore you. You'll be restored. You'll have your king. You, you will have your land. And you will be a light to the nations. And the nations will stream to Zion, which is the mountain that Jerusalem is built on, because they will worship your God. And there will be world peace. There's two passages that are identical, one in Isaiah 2, one in Micah 4, that says that Zion in the restoration will be exalted and the nations will stream to Zion and they'll worship Israel's God. And then throughout uh, Isaiah, you get a promise of a coming king. Uh, and then in Isaiah 40 through 48, you get a promise. They're, they're in Babylon and a promise that they'll be delivered from captivity. But then in 49 through 55 a promise that Israel will be delivered from their transgressions and sin, and they'll be forgiven. Then you get into Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a book that's pretty much all about judgment, except for the middle part, 
where you have the one time explicitly in the Old Testament where we're told that God is going to enter into a new covenant. Jesus references it at the Last Supper. If you read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, uh, that's a covenant. The new covenant is a covenant with the house of Israel that we Gentiles are very fortunate to be grafted into, according to Ephesians 3 and other places. Uh, And then you have Jeremiah 33, where God says, you know, if you could annul my covenant with the night and the day, then you could annul my covenant with my people Israel. Then you have Ezekiel, same thing, mostly judgment, and that, but then a promise of restoration. That, and God says that I will establish an everlasting covenant. I will give you a new heart. That promise is to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has a heart of stone. They're going to be given a new heart. And then you have Ezekiel 37. That's Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones that are resurrected, that's a a picture of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Uh, And then you have the book of the 12, which I don't have time to go through all of them, but Micah 4 is the same as Isaiah 2 about the promise of Zion being exalted. And then you have Zechariah 12 to 14, which I think are really important. I see the battle described in Isaiah 14 to be the battle described in Revelation 19. And the whole promise there is that that God will restore his people. Now, one last thing. I, I, I know this is not that brief, but the Old Testament's pretty long. Um, in Ez- the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, all of these pre-exilic prophetic promises to the nation of Israel, they were not fulfilled. The restoration fell far short of what the prophets promised, which means that there's something outstanding. In the time of the Maccabees, Uh, the promises of the pre-exilic prophets were not fulfilled. In the time of Jesus, some of them were fulfilled, and some of them are yet to be fulfilled. And that's where I get to the millennium, that the the pre-exilic promises to the nation of Israel, some of them are already fulfilled, already in Christ, some not yet fulfilled, so we need a millennium, or some other period of history where God will fulfill his promises to the the nation of Israel. If I I could just jump in there and and maybe helpfully bring out sort of where the distinctions are. I, I would agree with everything that Dr. Brown just articulated all the way up until the part where he says, well, I would, I would even agree with this in a sense, that, that some of these uh, promises are fulfilled in a sense with the, with the arrival of Jesus. But I would say that when it comes to, and, and I would agree, I would also agree that every Jew before the time of Christ who would have listened to that articulation would agree exactly with what Dr. Brown is saying. Uh, uh, we're, we're done, I guess. Jew, Jews before the time <laughs> of Christ are actually expecting. But the difference is, I think that the New Testament teaches us to uh, interpret those promises in a different way. So, for example, like the New Covenant... Uh, he says that Jesus, he, Jesus mentions it in the, in the Lord's Supper. I, I mean, he, he also, I mean, he, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So, so he said, I, I, I agree with this. this. It's a covenant that was entered into or that was promised to the house of Israel, to Judah. And then Jesus says that he fulfills it. And then the author of Hebrews talks to uh, Jewish Christians as if... Uh, you know, that, that all of these things are established in real time for them. Um, Paul in Galatians chapter 4 talks about how this promised seed, that all of these promises are sort of hanging on, that the seed of Abraham is actually Christ. 
And so uh, what I'm saying is I, I don't think that the New Testament gives us, I think that the, the way that the New Testament interprets a lot of these Old Testament passages is that they are fulfilled in a way that nobody would have expected, that, they're, that they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ in all who are in Christ. And so in terms of like outstanding expectations for a nation as a nation, you know, a national Israel as a, na- as a nation as opposed to uh, just the people that make up the nation, that's where I would, I would say I think that the New Testament gives us, uh, uh, teaches us to expect to uh, res- have those promises fulfilled in a way that we might not expect. Just, just one, one more example. Um, we, we, sa- we said we weren't going to spend a lot of time on this, and we, we don't have to, but um, Isaiah 65 would be one of those promises, that it, it's included in this whole bunch of promises that is extended out to the nation of Israel. And I think Dr. Schreiner, Schreiner and I would agree that John, in the book of Revelation, wants us to expect that the Isaianic promises in Isaiah 65 are being fulfilled in the eschaton, with the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And so I think that, that teaches us how to, how to expect Old Testament prophecies should be uh, fulfilled. That, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a prophecy that exists within this whole cluster of promises that's given to Israel. And then what John does is he takes these promises and then he expands them out. So uh, Isaiah 65 talks about death. John says, no, it's not just that somebody's going to die at the age of 100. It's that death is no more. Uh, so, so you have all of these different parallels. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that uh, all of these things are going to be fulfilled. So, uh, so the concern that Dr. Brown is, is bringing up, that we want to make sure that none of these promises given to Israel fall flat or are, are left unkept. And I'm saying I think that they are going to be kept and that they are kept in Christ, but they're kept in a way that is far more expansive than uh, a nation of Israel as a nation. No, this is one where you would be on this side of the... Yeah, yes, yes, and I, yes. I, I, I would, I would want to add, it's, I mean, it's very instructive. Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is typically by premillennialists understood to be referred in the millennium. But where is that in Revelation? It's in Revelation 21 and 22. You have all the allusions to Ezekiel 40 through 48. Whatever your view of the millennium, nothing is said about Ezekiel 40 through 48 in chapter 20. It's all in chapter 21 and 22. Isaiah 60, another very typical premillennial passage. Well, that, that's in Revelation 21 and 22. So I think that bears out with what, what Sam's saying. And the other thing I'd say, it's, it's so fascinating to me, which I've been talking about in New Testament theology. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is identified as Israel, the saints, the people of the Most High in the interpretation of the vision. The servant of the Lord is Israel. The king, the king uh, is David, but but what the New Testament does is it sees all those things fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the corporate head as the Son of Man. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the King. And therefore, I would argue, everyone who believes in Christ is part of that restored Israel. Jesus, the fulfillment climaxes in Jesus. And I think that fits with Galatians 3, Romans 4. We are the children of Abraham. We are the true circumcision. Who have the, we're the true Jews, Romans 2, 28 and 29, because we have the circumcision of the heart. So I think the promises are fulfilled to Israel and a restored Israel, and I think it agrees with what Sam's saying. They're fulfilled in the new creation, I would say. Yeah, and if I can slide in, in the middle here between all of these, I think to take what both have said, I can affirm most of what 
both of you just said and say, okay, here, what we see in the New Testament is we see the church, for example, participating in new covenant blessings, and there's no, I think, I, I think there's no question about that. And so to say, okay, the church is included in the fulfillment of these promises, yes, the New Testament is clear on that. But does that answer the question then about has God kept his promises made to Israel? You're saying yes. I think Adam is saying even if the church is participating in that, if the promise has been expanded to include the church, that there still is the matter of needing to do what he said with respect to Israel. And that might be, okay, there's a basic fault line that we need to move past mm-hmm. at the moment, but just to note that there's, I don't think you have to deny the church's participation in those promises in order to say, but there's still a loose end, which is, what about this nation of Israel? Can, can I segue into a, a question maybe that will help us? You know, again, I wanna, uh, there are things we agree on, things that we disagree on, but you know, what is the relationship between your millennial view, this, this brings us to that question, right, and the future of ethnic Israel? Are those necessarily <coughs> tied together? So for instance, um, people who hold the amillennial view uh, are often uh, accused of, you know, supersession theology or supersessionism. Replacement. Theology. Yes, replacement theology. There you go. Yeah. So if you're amillennial, do you necessarily have to be supersessionist, replacement theology, or, on the other hand, if you're premillennial, do you necessarily does that make you a Zionist, right? So uh, you, if you brothers want to speak to that. Yeah, I'll speak to that. Which is to say, I don't think there's a necessary relationship, meaning that when we talk about Zionism, we're talking about support for the present, you know, today, state of Israel, which has no necessary relationship to your eschatology. You know, mm-hmm. per my eschatology, Christ could come back tomorrow or he'd come back 5,000 years from now, and in the next 5,000 years, a lot can change politically and historically. So there's whatever I believe about Israel and the eschaton has no necessary relationship to Israel today. And um, so that's my answer to the question. Yeah, and... and um I would agree that there's no there's there's no necessary correlation. There might be, so your your eschatological position, um, depending on your your version of premillennialism, it may compel you to have a particular kind of uh, a view towards um, the the nation state of Israel, um, or or the you know the ethnic group the, of of Israeli people. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to. And uh, on the other side, amillennialism does not compel you to uh, basically say that there, there is no such thing as an ethnic people called Israel anymore that, that have actual promises to look forward to. Um, I think that there is. And I think I get, I get there from the whole argument that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 through Romans 11. And without getting uh, into uh, chapter 11... Um, too closely, I think that chapter 11 makes the argument, this is, this is a prophecy that, that Paul actually articulates in, in so, the epistle to, to Rome, that there's going to be an actual, uh, in mass, a, a revival, you could say, of ethnic Israelites. And so I would say that there is a future uh, for ethnic Israel. And um, So we would all agree on that, right, on yeah. this panel. We would all agree that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek, that the Jewish people are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, of the patriarchs. And I mean, in case anybody was, I'm not just on this side because I'm the moderator, 
because I'm kind of with Sam, but we'd, we'd, we'd agree that Romans 11 promises a future for ethnic Jews. Now, whether that's a nation state, as Adam would hold or not, that, that's... There's a number of things I want to say. I'll try to hit them really quick. Number one, I agree that Jesus is the new Israel. So I, I, I think that the Bible is pretty clear that, that Jesus is the covenant partner with Yahweh that, or that, with the Father that, uh, that Israel failed to be. Uh, however, in the Old Testament, there's, in Isaiah in particular, the, the servant songs from Isaiah 42 and then Isaiah 49 through 55, Israelites or Jews will interpret the servant as being Israel because it's ambiguous. It's difficult to interpret. Uh, and I think we rightly interpret it. No, there's a distinction between the suffering servant and the nation of Israel. Even though they're equated, there's a distinction. And one thing I want to say is, I could go to a lot of places, but there's one passage in particular where uh, God says in Isaiah 49, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That's to the suffering servant. And then he says, uh, oh, where is it? That you will, oh yeah. And now the Lord says, he who formed me, so this is now the servant speaking, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. And then he'll go on to say, but that's too small a thing. We also need to bring in the nations. So all that to say is, when we're talking about Jesus, I can affirm all of the New Testament promises that say that Jesus is the new Israel, and that we as Gentiles are in Christ, and therefore we are a part of the new Israel. Our union with Christ gives us that citizenship. That's the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3. Uh, and yet, all of that is true without replacing or sleight of hand changing God's promise to a, a nation, which is Israel. Uh, and so, it's, it, for me, it's, it's everything that they said plus a consistency with previous promises made to the nation itself, which, which need to be understood. And I would just go back and say, if you had lunch with Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of the twelve and you told them that there's no future for a political entity called Israel, I think that they might get up and walk out. Uh, that really one of the most important aspects of hermeneutics is what is the, the intention of the author. And I think that it would be so far out of their mind to consider that God would, would not keep his promise to a nation of Israel. I'm going to move it. We've talked about a lot of big picture issues. I want to move specifically. We have maybe 10 minutes left. I want to move specifically into the text of Revelation 20 and talk about two key issues there. The first one being the binding of Satan, right? So he sees the dragon, verse 2, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, Sam, you talked about this at great length at the beginning when you presented your view. If you can just briefly, briefly explain how an amillennial interpreter understands this binding in two sentences or less. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that this, this binding is a very specific binding. It is a binding to successfully... This is, that, that's, my, that's my interpretive introduction of that word, but to, de to successfully deceive... The nations. So I don't think that it means that he's, he's not trying to deceive the nations or that he's not able to deceive individuals here or there, but I mean successfully deceive the nations 
So I think that, that the, the binding is referring to what Jesus did at his uh, uh, first advent with his death and resurrection. He has strong, uh, bound the strong man. He has cast out uh, the judge of this world. So he has exercised the judge of this world per John uh, 12. And so uh, I think that that's what that's describing. So the, the fact that we can go to the nations with the gospel, with the confidence that even if um, principalities and powers in darkness oppose us, they cannot successfully keep the gospel from going to the nations because the strong man is bound. That's the way that I would interpret that binding. I would, I would say that Sam's two sentences rival Paul in Ephesians 1. <laughs> um, can you respond to that as a, the premillennial? I'd like to hear what Tom says about that. Uh, well, I, I'm very sympathetic with what Sam said because I have argued that. A changing and, of the mind. I've changed my mind on that, but I think, yeah. I think that's a very possible and plausible reading. When I was working on Revelation commentary now the second time, it seems to me that the binding is uh, more comprehensive than that. What, he's bound, he's locked. He doesn't deceive. When he's thrown to the earth in Revelation 12, he still plays a role in deceiving the world. So, it, and, and when he's thrown to the earth in Revelation 12, you'll hear me say this, I think that took place at the cross. So, so it's, I mean, I think it's, Sam could be right, but it just seems to me that the binding is more comprehensive. Yeah, and I would agree with that and maybe just yeah. add a couple of points. One is I think Sam's argument is... I would disagree with his interpretation of those gospels passages as we're talking about Matthew 12, um, Mark chapter 3 that's talking about binding the strong man. The context there is Jesus being questioned, you know, are you doing miracles in the power of Satan? And he's saying, no, basically, I'm not on Satan's team. I'm against Satan. Look, I'm casting out his demons. I'm, Satan has sent this demon here and I can make the demon go away. Like in this instance, in this moment with this exorcism, mm -hmm. I'm, Satan has no power over me. I'm I'm doing what I want to do. And so the strong man is bound in that local, immediate sense. Hmm. But of course, that's not saying that Satan is powerless to do anything in the world. And so we've got an issue with the interpretation of those gospel passages. We have an issue with the interpretation of Revelation 20, as Dr. Schreiner said, that you know, we have five different verbs here right? for what the angel does. He seized the dragon, he bound him, he threw him in the pit, he shut him, he sealed it over him. Any one of those verbs would have done the job to say, hey, he, he locked him up. But we have five different verbs to emphasize as strongly as it possibly can that he is put in a position where he has zero influence during this period. And that certainly doesn't describe the book of Revelation up to that point where he is at work, he's causing trouble, he's sending his agents, he's deceiving the world. So this has to be a condition that is changed from the book of Revelation up to this point. And then if we take your view, we've created a massive contradiction in Scripture because Scripture, in fact, does teach that during the New Testament period, the age of the church, that Satan is deceiving the nations. That's taught throughout the New Testament. And so we could look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right, that the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they, you know, wouldn't see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ at other places Satan is deceiving people today. He is blinding eyes today. And so we have, in order to try to solve one problem, we've created 
some pretty significant other ones. And, and somewhere it says that he's the God of this age still in the New Testament era, is it, doesn't it? What are you saying? Yes. I'm an Old Testament professor. So I, I, so I think that's, so yes. I, I think that that's okay. a, a very I'm, significant I'm, I'm, problem. I'm, I'm, with I'm going here. to mediate. I'm going, no, we are running out of time. So uh, I, uh, one more question, uh, interpretive question. Um, the nature and connection of the two resurrections in uh, Revelation 20 verses 4 and 5. I was just reading Dr. Schreiner's new Baker commentary in which he flipped to premillennialism, and I found the argumentation on this pretty compelling, actually, but I haven't changed my mind yet. But um, I don't yeah. know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Um, I found your argument strong. So no. can you discuss this issue and its implications for your view, the two resurrections in Revelation 20 verses 4 and 5? You're, you know... Maybe don't make Sam go first every time, right? Yeah. So I, I, I would just say I, I was an amillennialist before I wrote the commentary, but I think it's, it's difficult for the amill view that we have the first resurrection, and then in the next verse we have the resurrection of the wicked. Everyone agrees that's a physical resurrection. Uh, furthermore, this, this is something that struck me as a little bit of a different point. Quite powerfully, as I was studying Revelation, that the vindication of the saints, according to the Amil reading, the vindication of the saints and of the martyrs is not the physical resurrection of the dead in the Amil view, but instead it's the intermediate state. But, but that's, that's quite unusual for the New Testament to present the vindication as the intermediate state, which doesn't, the intermediate state doesn't receive a lot of attention in the New Testament. But the resurrection is regularly the, 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 the vindication of the saints. And, and so we end up with something quite curious that John does not emphasize in this apocalyptic book, the final physical resurrection. Now, the Amels say, well, there's a second resurrection implied for the saints, but he doesn't actually describe it. That's kind of weird. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, the, but with the great white throne judgment and the books opened up and Sheol giving up their dead. And, I mean, I, I would say that, so the, the amillennial perspective is that that is where the physical resurrection happens. Not just the physical resurrection of unbelievers, but the physical resurrection of, of everyone. Mm -hmm. And that, that uh, go, going back to um, other expectations, I think it's Matthew 25 um, and Daniel 12 is the Old Testament passage that talks about this. Uh, the, the expectation seems to be that whenever the resurrection happens, the physical resurrection happens, you're going to have everybody raised at the same time. And judgment is, is given right then and there that the unrighteous will uh, experience hell and the righteous will enter into um, a new life. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I would just, I would just counter that by saying we know of at least two phases to the resurrection because Jesus is, was raised as the first fruits. Yes. And then there's another resurrection of the rest of us, at least one, yes. maybe more than one. But the reason I bring that up is, you know, going back to Daniel 12, you know, the general resurrection, it sounds like everyone's being raised at the same time, but just by highlighting the unique timing of Christ's own resurrection, I think we would include his resurrection in Daniel 12. And so if we can 
separate Jesus from the rest of us, I think we can phase out the rest of us as well into multiple uh, resurrections from a timing perspective. Well, if I can just add a comment, just looking specifically at what it says here in Revelation 20. So in 20 verse 4, it says, um, it says, it's talking about those, you know, the souls of those who had beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on the forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so the question is, what is the nature of that resurrection? Is that a physical resurrection or is that a spiritual resurrection? Now, for the amillennial position to work, we need that to be a spiritual resurrection, that they are, you know, saved, basically. They're spiritually regenerated because, of course, we'd all say, if we're living in the kingdom now, that no large-scale physical resurrection has as of yet happened, so it has to be something else. It has to be spiritual. But, of course, the premill view is that that's talking about a physical resurrection uh, subsequent to the return of Christ. Now, verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life. And so the same exact verb, come to life, same word is used in both verses. And so in verse 5, they came to life. Sorry, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, I think all of us are going to agree that that, in verse 5, that's talking about physical resurrection. At the end of the millennium, whatever the millennium is, there is resurrection after that and judgment. And so... What the premill view is saying is that in both cases, we're talking about physical resurrection. Same verb, both verses. Actually, every other time we have zao used in the aorist in Revelation, it's talking about physical resurrection. Whereas the amill view needs us to believe that we're talking about spiritual resurrection in verse 4, but then without explanation, it changes to physical resurrection in verse 5. But actually, there's an explanatory comment in verse 5 that explains the meaning of came to life in verse 4, where it says in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. It's talking about resurrection. And um, so it, it's, and then the problem that, that Tom talked about is to say, the point of this seems to be vindication of the martyrs, and how is it, but the problem is that the martyrs are, they can't be saved spiritually after having been martyred, because the reason why they were martyred is because they were already saved spiritually. Right. And so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, end it. Can I? We're out of time. Uh, so okay. it, in sum, it's, so a, it's a say. very difficult exegetical I will thing do to it pull this way. together. I, let, let me do it this way. Uh, why, I want each one of you, as we end, to give what you think is the strongest argument for the other view uh, and what would cause you to change your mind. And I'll let Sam go first, and then we'll end with Dr. Brown. So. Can, can I say something else first before I say this? No. I, no. Let, me just, let me just say this very, 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 very briefly. If we're talking, if we're, if we're wanting to get very fastidious, which we should, about the, uh, the, the language of, of the, these passages, there, there is uh, an implied uh, meaning for both when we're both talking about uh, death and resurrection. So there's only one uh, first resurrection named as a first, and there's only one death named as a second. So what that implies is that there is a first death. If there's a second death, then there's a first death. But there's nothing given the name, this is the first death. And, and uh, likewise, when it says this is the first resurrection, there's also nothing given that says this isn't the, the second resurrection. 
So there is a symmetry here with if there is a first resurrection, there is implied a second resurrection that you have to supply from the context of that passage. And if there is a second death, you have to, then it implies a first death that you have to provide from the context. And so what I think that that passage is talking about is that the, the first death, when he, he, said, he describes the quality of, the, of, of what uh, experiencing the first resurrection is, which is that he does not experience the second death. It doesn't say anything about experiencing the first death. So he experiences the first death, but if you experience the first uh, resurrection, you don't experience the second death. If you, experience the, if you don't experience the first resurrection, you experience the first and the second death. So I think Sam, that that's what's what, what would it take to get you in this okay. chair? So, so yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, to, Sam to, to is writing, Sam is writing a very long book on this subject, which is uh, currently 140,000 words. Uh, no, no, it's 40,000. Oh, it's 40,000. It's, it's okay. supposed to be 150,000, but it's okay. not going. Okay, okay. Yeah, right. it's, you, you can read it. Let me, yeah. let, me, let me answer that question. I think the, the strongest uh, argument against my, possession, my position is what Dr. Zeller just articulated about the, the word resurrection. Um, my in, in my position, uh, this is, well, I, I, I disagree with... I, no. That, 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 We're trying to end on a charitable yeah. note. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, in we my all, we all really love I'll, each I'll other. say this. I'll say this. We just my, ate dinner. Together. My position. This is a very unique use of the word resurrection. Okay. This is a. This is an incredibly unique use of the word resurrection to say that the the souls of those who came alive with Christ that that that, that kind of resurrection is describing a spiritual resurrection of entering into the intermediate state. That is a very unique way of using that word resurrection. So that, I think, is a convincing argument. And what would it take to get me to become a premillennialist? If you could convince me that chapter 19 is sequentially before chapter 20 and that chapter 20 is not describing a brand new uh, cycle of I can of do that events. in 10 seconds. I don't no, think no, no. I don't I don't think that you could. So the strongest but. argument against the amillennial view, which I would agree with there's that. There's eight consecutive is, visions. Each starts with "and I saw" ranging from 1911 no, to no, chapter no, 21, minute, and you're taking two of them and pulling them out of sequence. So four and five, the the use of the words "zao" and then "anastasis" and five. Yes. That's the strongest argument against the amillennial view. I, I would agree. So. I think so. I would agree. And, and yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's what Sam said. N.T. Wright, in his book on resurrection, says anastasis always means physical resurrection. But then he says, but not in Revelation 20. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, what do, what's the strongest argument for the amillennial view? I, <laughs> I would say, I mean, I think there's a number of very strong arguments, but I, I would actually say, I, I think in some ways, it's the way you read the whole Bible. Which is, that sounds like a very general answer, but I, but I mean what I say. And I think you totally disagree with that. No, I agree with yeah. that. That's, that's, I mean, I think that's the weakness, but I think that's, uh, that's, that's a necessary piece. If you're going to become all millennia, you have to read the Old Testament very differently than I do. Yeah, and I, yeah, my reading of the whole Bible, you know, generally Sam and I would almost, we, we would agree almost down the line, except for for me when it comes to the binding of Satan and the resurrection. But besides that, and that's why I'm attracted to amillennialism, I think its reading of the whole of Scripture is, is by, the best. By tomorrow evening, you'll switch. 
back. And, and, it, and it's, and it's oh. also who, the, we didn't even talk about this, but it's also who, who are the enemies who are attacking the church what, that what, are numbering the sand of the sea. Yes. Before uh, Satan is cast what, into What about you, brothers? What is the strongest argument against your view, like for, your, for our millennialism, that would change, bring you to this side? Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, I, I guess Dr. Parkinson, having done this, I might begin my agreement with some disagreement. Um, which is to say that, like, it, it's a tough road for me to get to amillennialism because I look at Revelation 20 and I say, oh, man, there's about five different things, the binding of Satan, the resurrections, the structure, like, that each of them by themselves is very implausible, and I would need to believe all of them at the same time to be amillennial. That's, like, a tough road to get to amillennialism. Um, that said, a couple things, you know, sort of, pull on me. And we're talking here about our differences. That's what we focused on here. There's just a lot of things that we agree on. And I would say in the course of my study of scripture over the last 25 years, I've moved, I, I was raised in a tradition that was, um, you, you know, was kind of the left behind hardcore dispensational, like there's everything is future. None of this is for now. And so like in my study of scripture, I've evolved like much closer to a place where I have much more agreement with these guys than I do with that position now because in areas that we haven't even talked about, reading the Gospels, talking about the kingdom, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what does that mean? It's like we are on the same page with that. So the fact that we can, you know, preach the Gospel of Matthew and, you know, go through the New Testament and agree on so many things, that makes me say, hey, like, I'm, like we're on the same team here. Like I want what these guys want. I think the other thing that I... Can I, can I move us on? Well, well, just I'll Eric, say, well, let me we'll say one more Eric, thing quickly. Eric is saying he's evolving and he's eventually going to end up with Sam. Yeah, I, no, I think I've stopped. There. I've stopped. So, but in another so, 25 years, I, I am interested. Yeah. This this new this new creation millennialism. I heard of for the first time, like whenever your commentary came out two weeks ago or something. <laughs> and and I'm interested. You know, like I, I would like to think more about. I mean, I think I'm very open to the idea of the millennium being the first you know, mm. the first level mm. of the new creation. And so I think that's something I want to think more about. Mm. And, uh, so what would it take? Somewhere. It would take him becoming a new creation millennialist first. <laughs> and then he could... <laughs> step. And then, yes. yeah, I, don't, I don't see Incrementally. What, you get one sentence, brother. Revelation. No, what? no, you can't do that to me. <laughs> uh, uh, if you could convince me that God would break his covenant with night and day, oh my gosh. Oh, wow. then oh my I would God. become an all-millennial. Get out of here. <laughs> okay, because I, I'm no, going to pray for us... Three, three oh, words. Oh, that's it? Yes, that's it. Except we have to talk about the Levites and the sacrifices in those passages, but we'll talk about that later in Jeremiah 33. But um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, say a prayer from the book of Revelation that all, should be the cry of all of our hearts. Uh, everyone on this panel agrees with this prayer. Mm. Everyone in this room agrees with this prayer. And this is our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Amen. Jesus. Uh, we will now... Uh, I, I, maybe you've been listening to this panel and you're like, wow, I, I don't even know what's going on here. <laughs> how, 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 can I, how can I read the Bible, learn to read the Bible well to even understand what these brothers are talking about? Um, guess what? You have great opportunities here, right? So first of all, make sure that you are a member of a healthy local church that preaches the Bible expositionally and that you sit under the preaching of God's word week after week. That's how you learn to read the Bible well. Uh, take every opportunity that your local church offers to teach you the Bible, uh, Sunday school classes, discipleship classes, groups, whatever that is, and 
you can learn from these esteemed scholars at the Gulf Theological Seminary. So uh, all you need to do is uh, right after this um, uh, meeting, just go outside and you can meet Madel, who is at the table there. She can give you a prospectus. She can give you other information. And you can learn more about all the fantastic training that is brought by God's grace to our doorstep right here in the UAE, both in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, through GTS's programs. All right, God bless you. We're going to stand uh, now and sing uh, as we prepare to hear Dr. Shrina one more time tonight. 